first weird incident in Escalante Canyon was the Pete incident. We'd actually spent the day before climbing in the Black Canyon, the most haunted and enlightening climbing area I know of. And we ended up Escalante late at night, setting up camp at some pull-off on the side of the road, a party spot disguised as a campsite, complete with a fire ring full of beer bottle caps, surrounded by broken glass. As we threw down our sleeping bags in the dirt, we all made some small talk and then drifted off into the cosmos. But just as we were doing that, we heard a voice, which appeared to be coming below the cliffs. Pete, Pete, Pete. We awoke from our slumber, and now this was the only thing in the world we could focus on. It kept happening. Pete, Pete, Pete. Welcome to episode two, season two of Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I am your host, Luke Mihal, and I'm going to be continuing to read from The Desert, a dirtbag climbing book. If you're just now finding this episode, recommend starting off at episode one as the first uh, several episodes of this podcast are all going to be a continuous story from the desert. The best way to support this podcast is to get something from us. We always leave a link in our show notes with a small discount code to pick up a book, pick up a zine, pick up some of our Dirtbag State of Mind merch, and that's the best way to support us. We are obviously a free podcast, but we have many costs associated with this. Showing some love to us and picking up something from our store is the best way to keep this thing going. Episode 2, Bob the Cop and Other Weird Desert Tales. The desert is a place of escape for the climber. Shit, it's all escape, at least for me, escaping this mess we call society. I may not live off the land, but I do live for it. Something like that. There's a transfer of energy that I rely on as much as the sun. But of course, we're just getting started here. I'm reaching. My writing guru, George Sibley, recently told me, what's the point of writing a book if you know how it's going to end? I just know at this point, I've got the desert in me, and I thought it would be interesting to see how it comes out, how recalling stories and fond memories could paint a picture. I guess I've also given up, in a way. I've given up on humanity, on the belief that we might just save ourselves from ourselves. The desert is a perfect place to be in this state of mind, at least for yours truly, and it always brings me back to a centered place in my mind and my heart. We may be fucked, but the desert says, this too shall pass. Like any love affair, it began with flirtation. I was this college student in the Bush years, those post-9-11 days, the end of innocence for a generation, already on the path of dropping out. Society didn't seem to have a place for me, and I discovered climbing, so I didn't feel much of a reason to seek out a place. I would simply live in a tent and go climbing forever. Simple enough, right? In Gunnison, where I went to college, winter was the true enemy if you wanted to live in a tent and climb. 40 degrees below zero. It happens. And for a person like myself, who can easily fall into depression, winter in Gunnison was no friend of mine. 
In the American climbing world, each area is distinctly referred to as its name. Yosemite, the Gunks, the Red River Gorge, Devil's Tower, Smith Rocks, and on. But the desert is simply too vast to be contained in one name. That said, the desert to me means the Colorado Plateau, a seemingly infinite expanse of red rocks in Colorado and Utah, land that used to be the sea, rocks crafted by wind and rain, leaving behind a canvas of which an artist can create their work. Or at least that's how it seems if this land is looked at by a climber. A place so extensively vast, I won't risk ruining it by romanticizing about it. And I'm not trying to make some fucking outside magazine top whatever list anyways. I doubt I'll make any converts out of this book. Preaching to the choir? Absolutely. Indian Creek gets all the fame. Canyonlands and arches, too. But more from the tourists bound to their vehicles in a relationship that might border on insanity. Those types of people who go on vacation and bring everything with them. I was raised with Midwest comfort of safety, stability, and predictability. Hardly a man of the West. But this is America. We have the luxury of redefining ourselves. That is, of course, if we have money. Not everyone in America has money. In college, gas wasn't more than a dollar a gallon, so we had enough money to get to the desert. In Gunnison, we were close to that Colorado part of the desert, that which surrounds Grand Junction. My favorite types of public lands have always been the unregulated ones, the ones where you feel like you're in the Wild West, with more cows around than people, more birds than dogs, with sage and blue skies above. The desert has all sorts of this type of land and also has the more regulated land. You'd look for the Bureau of Land Management or BLM land on a map if you wanted to find the unregulated, rugged, cowboy type landscape. And you'd look for a national park if you wanted something a little more manicured and paved. There's a whole lot of gray in between in the reasons for protections of lands, but we're still in the red here. Yes, the red was where the first desert flirtations lie. We'd zip out of Gunnison on a cold winter morning, and by the time the coffee was starting to wear off, we would arrive. We'd either go to Escalante Canyon, a band of sandstone that looks like it was dropped off on its way to Indian Creek, or Colorado National Monument, a wild protected place with intimidating towers and rock that range from soft to solid. A flash of memories comes rushing towards me at this point. My 30-foot headfirst fall in the monument, and then Mark's 30-foot headfirst fall a year later in Escalante Canyon. Repelling Otto's route in the monument in that pitch black with Josh, who was late for his house arrest check-in. Guiding high school kids up Otto's route shortly after that. Wondering what it felt like for John Otto to climb this route in 1911 and just how nuts he really was, bailing off what would later become my favorite route in the monument, Medicine Man, because I was scared of the incoming rain and then the skies became perfectly blue the minute we were on the ground. Climbing this thing called the Turd Tower, it climbed like it was named and covered with bird poop, and then climbing with Bob the Cop, an officer of the law that we somehow made acquaintances with, and he encouraged us to trespass the one and only time I climbed with them. And then we get a note left on our car by one of the property owners. I never climbed with Bob the Cop again. Not only because of the trespassing incident, and not just because he was a cop, but also because he didn't offer me the chance to lead when we climbed with him. 
He assumed he'd lead because I was a youngster, and he was the old trad daddy. And I don't remember a lot of things, but for some reason, that little gesture stays with me when I think of my beginning days in the desert. I was a punk kid, of sorts, 21, and fully abiding by the phrase, tune in, turn on, and drop out, for my beatnik and hippie predecessors. It was the dropping out part that led me to escaping to the desert or other climbing places all the time. Time spent in nature felt like the best way to spend time. I'd also just come off a period of deep depression that almost led me to suicide. This was before climbing and something I'd had written about an American climber, so I won't dwell upon it too much here, but it's worth mentioning. It's also particularly interesting that I nearly killed myself on accident a couple times, right after I decided life was worth living. They were stupid climber mistakes, like the monster fall I took in the monument and the time I rappelled off the end of my rope in Yosemite. It's important to dwell and reflect on the mistakes that one makes as a climber. So many climbers have had near-death experiences, and to be near to death and to escape without injury twice was worth contemplating for the rest of my life. This episode is sponsored by Osprey. Osprey and the climbing zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey here in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit Osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond. Another longtime sponsor of the climbing zine, Black Diamond is all about climbing, skiing, and mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond Camelots are an essential ingredient for heading up any splitter. From the new 7 and 8 C4s to the new Z4s, you can never have too many Camelots in the creek. But once your Creek 50 backpack fills up, might as well hand the rest of the rack to your buddy to carry up. To find out more, visit blackdiamondequipment.com. Escalante Canyon seemed to be one of those places that possess both a positive, life-giving energy and one that also seemed haunted by the past. I'm a skeptic when it comes to ghosts and houses that are haunted, but I've had a couple experiences that I could simply not ignore. The first was the Pete incident. We'd spent the day before climbing in the Black Canyon, the most haunted and enlightening climbing area I know of, and then we ended up in Escalante late that night. We set up camp at some pull-off on the side of the road, a party spot disguised as a campsite, complete with a fire ring full of beer bottle caps surrounded by broken glass, BLM kind of camping. As we threw down our sleeping bags in the dirt, we all made some small talk and then quickly drifted off to the cosmos. But just as we were doing that, we heard a voice, which appeared to be coming from just below the cliffs. Pete, 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 Pete. We awoke from our slumber, and now this was the only thing in the world we could focus on. It kept happening. Pete! Pete! 
he, we looked up to the cliffside to see if we could find a headlamp or any sort of light. Nothing. The voice seemed to get softer and softer, but was still crying out for Pete. What do we do in this situation, we wondered. We thought maybe we should help, but we couldn't identify where this voice was coming from. Then we started to get really spooked. We decided at that moment that we should move our campsite. Sleep would no longer be comfortable here. And maybe we could shine the lights from our car up on the hillside to find this person, this voice. We packed up the car in a hurry, throwing sleeping bags and pads in recklessly and fired up the engine. No more cries from Pete, just three dirt bags spooked in the dead of the night. As we drove past the cliffside where the voice was coming from, we saw nothing. We turned off the car engine and listened for voices. Nothing. We drove several miles up the road, found another redneck-created campsite, and again laid down our bags and weary bones, tired enough to sleep in a place that might damn well be haunted. Thinking about it more now, I have a hard time believing it was something from the supernatural world, but I also don't have proof that it wasn't. I'm not much of a superstitious person, nor do I really believe in religion or ghosts. But there is a certain energy that Escalante seems to have. Perhaps maybe, just maybe, there was a ghost named Pete trying to find his way back home still. Just a few months later, I found myself back in Escalante Canyon with vague plans of where to camp. We were climbing at the cabin wall, named so because of an old brick cabin constructed in the sandstone at the parking area. The cabin was built by a veteran of the Civil War, a tombstone maker, who somehow found his home in this obscure canyon far away from any sort of city. Wild West kind of shit. We decided that night that we would stay in the cabin. And why wouldn't we? It would be warmer than sleeping under the stars. We caught a nice buzz in the cabin and talked about how cool it was. Next time we should come back with a keg, we said. Think about how many people we could fit in here. Probably a dozen or so. We didn't think much about the previous occupant or contemplate what life was like for him. Was he tortured by the memories of war? Was he a happy loner, content to be out west, away from the duties of civilized life? Was he on the run from something or someone? We fell asleep in total darkness. A more pitch black place to sleep could not be found in the canyon. All night, no matter where I was in my dreams, I dreamed I was at war. If I was dreaming I was on a street corner, there were men with guns chasing me. If I was at home in my dream, I would be on the lookout for shooters. I've never had dreams like this in my life. It was terrifying. And it went on over and over all night. I woke up cold and exhausted. Somehow I channeled the energy of Henry Smith or one of the many guests he had who sketched their names on the wall above in a similar manner to the more artistic petroglyphs that the Native Americans had left on sandstone walls across the desert. I never set foot in that cabin again. War. What is it good for? I'd graffitied that in Sharpie in the back of my car shortly after 9-11, and George W. and our government started sounding the war drums in Iraq. There was little chance I'd go to war, a much bigger chance that I'd go to the desert. 
I wanted a real American life, and more accurately, I wanted a Western American life. In those times, I was immediately, passionately against the war, yet I attended no demonstrations. In Gunnison, we were hours away from any major city. I wrote my little editorials in the college newspaper, which were probably preaching to the choir. Again, I wasn't making any converts. Never been very good at that. I'm better at reinforcing, I think. A college student in Gunnison asked me recently if I would recommend climbing to them if they'd never tried it. I answered that recommending climbing was kind of like recommending psychedelic mushrooms. I wouldn't recommend it, but in the same breath, I wouldn't be the same without it. Doors of perception opened. In America, there are only two types of men. Those who have been to war and those who have not. It seems there is always one war for every generation. At the very least, it is every American's obligation to learn about war. World War II seems like the logical place to start, especially for my generation, because our grandparents were all directly affected by it. Most of our grandfathers went, and most didn't talk about it. Mine didn't. He received a purple heart after getting wounded by a bullet. According to my grandma, he didn't feel like he deserved it, when many of the fellow soldiers suffered a much worse fate. He got sent back to the States because he was a good typist, and the military needed someone to write discharges. So I guess it's in my blood to write and not fight. Then again, we all don't go to war like they used to. Thankfully, I didn't have to fight in no war, and while I know of the atrocities of it, I never felt it. My love affair with the desert began in the times of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the Afghanistan war is one that still unfolds to this day with American involvement. My activities in the desert largely were self-indulgent for the betterment of self. Something like that. Again, I'm just stretching out here, just warming up. We got miles to go together. Basically, my goal was just not to die on any given day. The deep depression that I had survived made me think about death a lot. I like to think that I thought a lot. I did. I thought a lot about death and not dying, and how since I easily could have died several times in the last couple years, every additional day I could live was a gift. I took full advantage of the American right to choose my own religion. I was raised Catholic, and I'm grateful for that. My parents were good people who raised me to value friendships and respect my fellow human beings. There was a major blow-up when, at 19, I declared that I didn't believe in Christianity anymore. But the dust settled like it often does, and it was never a major barrier in our relationship. My religious decision was to reject religion. I still believed in a higher power. After all, how can you believe in your own existence if you don't believe in a higher power? Religion seems so deceptive, though, and so much of it seemed ridiculous. So is Jesus white, or is he more likely dark-skinned? And King James, he rewrote the Bible, right? Heaven and hell, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, a pregnant virgin? If psychedelics did one thing for me, it made me form this belief that I'd just wait until death to see what was really true. It seemed like everyone was wrong. No one really knows what happens to us after we die. The world seemed to be organized on speculation and superstition. Like most of my peers, I was conscious of something bigger, but not religious. I had to respect religion, though, at least Catholicism, because it helped form who I was. 
and if I believed one thing, I believed I was a good person, or at least trying to be. No priest ever tried to molest me, and the worst thing that ever happened to me at church was that I was bored out of my mind. The great outdoors, the great desert, that was my church. Mother Nature was God. I had absolutely nothing figured out, but I'd seen the face of death several times, and I had no fear of Jesus judging me for what I'd done or not done. In fact, the whole concept seemed ridiculous. In the same breath, though, I felt guilty for expressing that, because in the beginning, I was raised Catholic, and Catholic guilt would stick with me a lot longer than any of the beliefs, which is probably why I became a writer. A conversation back and forth in your head is one thing, and it can turn you into a crazy person. Put that conversation down on paper, though, and you can become a writer. And when people agree with you, or at a minimum, respect you, then you find your readers. Hopefully, your writing is good enough that even those who don't agree with you will read. And that's what America is all about at its best, right? A bunch of people who think differently, but find common ground in the fact that we are all Americans. We unite in our differences. Ah, man, I'm still reaching. I was different, but I was privileged. In my younger 20s, I felt like a freak a lot of the time. I felt lonely. I felt like the only times I really had answers to my questions were when I was out in nature climbing, and when I had someone to share that with. Books provided so much, too. To know that I wasn't the only one looking for answers, and to know I wasn't the only one critical of religions and institutions. The most influential two authors I read were Jack Kerouac and Martin Luther King Jr. Kerouac provided the beatnik platform for adventure and the Great American Road, while King reinforced all the best aspects of Christianity and showed how much could be accomplished with strict adherence to one's moral compass. King was my hero, and Kerouac was my cautionary tale. Kerouac would lead you to the road, but you were on your own once you got there. King could lead you to the proverbial mountaintop. Their books were my buddies. I loved to read and write, and write based on inspiration of what I'd read. What I didn't realize then, perhaps because of my deep affection for the dirtbag life, although we always used the term climbing bum then, was that this lifestyle, at least in the United States, was an extension of white privilege. Ignorance is bliss, and knowledge is power, right? As a climbing bum, I accepted that nature was my home. And even if a rock was my pillow, it was where I belonged. But could I have lived this lifestyle if I were not white? It was a difficult question to pose, because most of the other climbing bums were white. And at the time, most of them were male. Climbing had always seemed like an open-minded community, but it was also the whitest damn sport in the country. And why was that? Well, we gloss over it when we learn history. Well, we don't even really gloss over it. We flat out lie. We are a nation built upon slavery and genocide. America committed genocide against the Native Americans and enslaved Africans. Any and every history lesson about America should begin right there. Not with Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492, or the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock, but with this truth. My generation grew up with Martin Luther King Jr. as a hero. The context of why he was a hero was vague, 
at least when you're white and you're in seventh grade, as it's difficult to understand for a young white kid who is fed a certain narrative about the country. But he was placed there on a pedestal. And the more you learn about King, the more you want to learn about your country. And the more you admire King, the more you want the truth. And the truth shall set you free. I grew up with kids of all races, and not much was made of race in my family. I never heard my parents say anything racist, ever, and thus I was never encouraged to be racist. Our neighborhood looked like a lot of middle-class American neighborhoods, with proof that this country could function as a melting pot that we were. Whatever the fuck melting pot means. That's my word and my brain for America, I guess. And I think my upbringing in this diverse environment made me believe in the virtue that we are all created equal. However, the more you live life and the more you study America, the more you see that the playing field is not fair. White privilege is murky. It can be hard to see, but it is real. And it certainly played out in my favor when I was just tramping around America in the desert, roaming as free as I wanted to be. Looking honestly at America is the only way to move forward. The more I learned of the truth and the more I learned of the problems of the world, the more I dropped out from it, content to be a climbing bum. That's privilege. I had the option to do that, so I did. For years in my writing, I romanticized the climbing bum life, and I think I always will in some ways. But why is that? Well, I suppose first and foremost, it's because I love the life. But what does living that life do to enhance the world? I don't think anything, really. Then, why did the urge to live in the climbing bum lifestyle feel like everything? Like the thing I had to do above everything else? It was freedom, and that American love for it. But damn, it's just really a human thing and not an American thing. Just an American branding of freedom, like stupid fucking country songs. And it was the magic of nature. Land that Native Americans cared for and lived off in a free society before the First Amendment ever came along. In a country that was largely built by African Americans against their will. A system that also practically enslaves poor whites through economic injustice. And then the Republicans still get their votes by blaming their problems on the immigrants. A country that is led today by a white supremacist in the form of Trump. But that's not at all fun to read, is it? Fun. The movement that created the dirtbag lifestyle was largely motivated by fun. At least in all my research, that's how I have come to see it. For all intents and purposes, Kerouac and his buddy Neil Cassidy were the grandfather and godfathers of this lifestyle. On the Road by Kerouac would get you on the road, but it was Dharma bums where Kerouac seemed to be comfortable in his own skin. My man Kerouac killed himself with alcohol. I'd like to think that if he found something like rock climbing, he could have saved himself from himself. Ah, oh, but I'm still reaching. You're still out there, still Kerouac, aren't you? I'm learning from you and your lessons, thinking that the answer is out there somewhere in America. That was episode two 
Season 2, Dirtbag State of Mind Podcast. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Music and beats in this podcast are from Devin Dabney. Check the link in your show notes to pick up a book, pick up a zine, pick up some merch. From beautiful Durango, Colorado, signing off. Peace.